Good morning and welcome. In this episode of the Perthian Chronicles, we have Courtney Turner. Now, according to my stalking, Courtney Turner is a Zimbabwean-born performer, director and designer based here in Perth. After completing a Bachelor of Contemporary Arts, double major in Contemporary Performance and Theatre Studies with Edith Cowan University and the Western Australian Academy of Performing Arts, she relocated to Brisbane in 2013 to be an intern with the Zen Zen Zoe Physical Theatre Company. During this time, she helped create and performed in her first Buto show, Here There Be Dragons. In 2015, Courtney directed and produced an adaptation of The Happy Prince with her company, Toy Soldier Children's Theatre, as well as training with the CT Company in New York. She is a member of the Open Lit Ensemble and has performed with them in Helena in the 2015 Perth Fringe World Festival and in Rishk, the Little Match Girl, for Fremantle Festival 2016 and then again for the 2017 Perth Fringe World Festival. I'd also like to note that the show was nominated and I watched it with Mum. I think I wrote to you and it was the first time that both of us cried while watching a show. It was the very first, not like, you know, but we both shed a tear and it's just, we have different tastes, but it's it just, anyway, a really, really good piece of work. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> I can confidently say that for me, Courtney is a friend, fellow thespian and my part-time theatrical guru. Courtney, welcome. Oh, wow. Thank you. What a beautiful welcome. <laughs> oh, goodness me. <laughs> Now, I know to, to start off the conversation, because in your biography, see, the one thing, why I say part-time theatrical guru, because, well, I think I consider you a little bit of, not necessarily a mentor, but I, I, I consider you an elder of mine, because you're a little bit older than myself, yeah. and you travelled a lot. You went to Brisbane and you went to New York. So first off at the bat, I know this is a very early task, but do you see yourself as a pioneer in Perth's art scene? Or a tourist? Oh, see, it's such a tricky question. Um, I don't know if I see myself as either of those things. I guess I really just want to make the work that I want to make. Mm. And if that ends up, you know, being sort of a pioneer, that would be cool, really cool. But no, I don't think, I don't think I'm a tourist here. I think in my plans so far, I think I want to stay in Perth for as long as possible. Mm. There's no plans at the moment to, you know, move over east. Like a lot of people... Because, yeah, that tends to be what I think happens a lot is that there's not as many opportunities in Perth, so people decide to move over east. But, yeah, I've got a really good group that I'm working with right now, and so as long as we can all work together, I can't see us moving too far afield just yet. (laughs) See, that's the interesting. Like, how did you... Because the Open Lit Ensemble, Mm. did you all know each... There's five members, isn't there? Uh, Six six of us. Yeah. And um, also a musician, Michael. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, Yeah. Well, I studied with one of the girls at uni, with Annie, Mm. and then she went on to do her honours at Curtin, where she met Sinead and Hannah. Then I'd met... I'd already met Sinead and Hannah at a Zen Zenzo workshop previously, and that's also where I met one of the other girls, Kat. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, who, who she also did the internship the year after me with Zen Zenzo. They all set, set up the company and then a little while later, I think maybe a month or two, invited me to join. Uh, and the only one I didn't know out of the ensemble was Amanda, but I'd seen her perform a few times. Mm. And so I was really excited to get to know her. So, yeah, we sort of, I don't think there was much of a plan. They just, you know, wanted to create some sort of show that was based on physical theatre 
And it just turned out that we worked really, really well together, uh, which is amazing for an ensemble with no director. We just keep on making theatre from there. Is there like any key qualities of being a good ensemble member? Like, is there like mm. at least one thing you have to be like empathetic or? Yeah, definitely. You definitely need empathy. I think you also need to know how to listen, but also when to speak up and when it's important to, you know, like fight for your idea and when it's important to be like, okay, no, I need to let this idea go. Just sort of. Yeah, caring for each other in the room is also really important. We're lucky that we've all become really good friends as well mm. and that working together hasn't stopped us being friends or broken up friendships, which, you know, working together sometimes does. Yeah. But, yeah, just, yeah, I think, yeah, being really empathetic, caring for each other and knowing that you're all working towards the same goal of putting on a really great piece of theatre. Uh, so, yeah, we have disagreements there are times when we annoy each other, hmm. but I think we always show up into the room and try and be present, and so far it seems to work. Was it a group decision not to have a director? No, um, I think we just started working out without one, and then the next show we are like, oh, we don't know whether to get one or not, hmm. um, because we couldn't really think of anybody who could come into that position and not sort of mess up the dynamic that we had. We were worried that... You know, having another, like, a director might impose their ideas on the show or, you know, it might mess up because uh, we devise all together and we have such a whole ensemble that, you know, we all share ideas and we all have input and a say in everything. We were worried a bit that that might come into it. Um, but what we're thinking of, instead of a director for our next show, is to actually get a dramaturg to come yeah. in. Because we, we definitely found doing Risht, there were times when we were just like, we need an outside eye. This is really, really difficult uh, to know whether the story is tracking, to know whether it's making sense, whether there's any plot holes. You know, we were just too close to it. Mm. And yeah, there's no one to watch it and be like, ah, oh, you're, you're looking a different way to everybody else in this movement, you know, where you're all meant to be exactly the same. Mm. It, yeah. So I think having a dramaturg will really help in that regard. When you say the word dramaturg, I don't think it's a really, like, I think us young folk, yeah, I think it's a re it's becoming a real a really important role in our in like the sort of theatre groups and theatre companies that the, the potential mm. of the dramaturg like in Germany it's massive yeah. like the role of the dramaturg you know trumps that's like the top I know person. and I've yeah I've never ever used a dramaturg before in my life and when we were told exactly what a dramaturg would do for mm. us we were like ah. Oh. That's amazing. That's exactly this person that we needed, that we've been talking about for the last however long. You know, the last few months we've been like, we just need a person to watch it and tell us what needs changing. And, you know, to be really harsh and, you know, tell us what we need to hear. So, yeah, I'm pretty excited to see what it's like having somebody come in and do that role. What do you get from adapting, you know, classic tales? Because that's mm. Hans Christensen. Yeah, Hans Christian Andersen tale, yeah. And then also you had The Happy Prince... Mm. That's Oscar Wilde, yes? Yes, oh, yeah, yeah. Is it, because I was, I was having this in, in the previous episode, the chapter that um, with Glenn Hayden, we, I, at the end of it, I was talking about how, like, there's this famous theatrical actress, uh, Ralph Richardson, you know, in the 80s, he's, he's long time dead. And he was saying, like, he was acting in his late 70s, and he would go on interviews and he said he hated, he really, really hated writers. In the rehearsal room, he really because there would be a lot of line changes and whatnot. Yeah. And he says, 
you know, I don't get, when I do a Shakespeare, I don't get any complaints from William Shakespeare, George mm -hmm. Bernard Shaw, because they're all dead. And yeah. they just leave me Do you find there is, like, where do you sit on the fence? Do you think we should continue investigating the classics? We can always mm. find something new? Yeah, I definitely think so. And I think the classics, because, you know, they've stood the test of time mm. and are still relevant today, even though they, you know, were written sometimes hundreds hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And I definitely think there's something that you can find in it that relates to this time, where you can maybe look at it from a different angle that perhaps nobody's really looked at it before and find something new in it. Uh, I also just, I really love the writing that it's just so beautiful. Oscar Wilde's probably my favourite playwright, closely followed by Shakespeare, um, <laughs> very closely. Uh, he's just so witty, though, yeah. and some of his insults are just brilliant. But yeah, like the both both stories are tragically sad, but yeah. very beautiful in their sadness. Um, yeah, I've, I I love the Happy Prince since I was little, and my mum had told me that story, so that's the reason why I wanted to put that show on, just because. Yeah, I'd always imagined it in my head, and I was like, when I was looking for something to make a first play on, mm. I was like, oh, that's that's a good idea. I think it also helps that they're out of copyright. Yeah. That's also yes. something, I don't think many people talk about it, but, you know, it's a big thing as, you know, starting up theatres, you know, emerging artists, we don't have a lot of money. No. And so having things that are out of copyright that you don't have to pay for, that you can still use and, you know, really enjoy the work and pay tribute to the person who wrote it. Mm. But it, yeah, it just helps a little bit with the budgets. <laughs> well, one of the days, see, what I'm really not, because one of the projects I want to do hopefully next year, or, you know, I don't know, hopefully all, mm. all the plans goes well, I want to do a production of Waiting for Godot Ooh. and perform. But, cool. but the sad thing is, because, you know, Samuel Beckett died in... Um, 1980. It's not in the public domain, basically. No, not still, yet. Yeah. But, and you have to deal with the Beckett estate, which is quite infamous for strictness. Oh, and wow. you have to, you, you know, you have to be, um, it's, it's, they're, they're, oh, what's the word? Uh, not, not, not flexible, the opposite of flexible. Oh, rigid. Um, um, yeah. yeah. They're, they're quite, which is fair enough because, you know, Samuel Beckett in his writing was quite precise. Very, yeah. What was I going on about that? Um, sorry, sorry, that's why I, I think is it something to do with yeah they won't let you change it. Are you yeah, to do some, like, yeah, play so with it or anything. One of the things I'd love to do. So it's not in the public domain, but oh, that's right. Um, Waiting for Godot, you know, was I think first produced in 1947. The French and attendant yeah. Godot's, I think that's the French title, and, and then the English version was produced in 1952 in England. But it's. It, it was, you know, produced in the late 40s, early 50s. Yeah. But, you know, Samuel Beckett died in 1989. And you have to wait 70, 70 years, years yeah. until... So then you can freely use and do whatever you want mm. with it. Which I think defeats the purpose. But what I want to do with it, I'd love to do an all-female production. That'd be... Of Waiting for God. Yeah, that'd be great. And hopefully... Because 89, I think we've got about a couple of years, so... Yeah, so 99. Yeah, you've got a little way to go. So <laughs> that'll be my thing. I think hopefully yeah. I'll have enough time as a director. I'll get experience as a director and that'll be my other... I'll be retiring and I'll say... You oh, finally get to do your little... I get to yes. do that. <laughs> do that production. Yeah. Oh, that'd be great. I want to talk about Shakespeare. Mm. Do you have uh, a favourite play? From Shakespeare? Yeah. Oh. Or, or okay. one that you keep returning to? I do love Romeo and Juliet. Oh, yeah. I really do. I also love The Tempest, though. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great, great play. I've studied Macbeth a little bit and like learning a bit more about 
what was going on at the time when he wrote it mm -hmm. and you know a little bit more about that and all the insight like it's a very political play compared to mm. his other ones so I, yeah i love that one as well but yeah a lot of a lot of his plays i love a midsummer night's dream it's beautiful just oh. the writing is just exquisite and i think i think you hit the nail on the head i think the the reason why people should look into the classics is because of the language and you can really study the evolution of the English mm. language, for example. Yeah. So yeah, I think, yeah, because like, I think there is a place to devise new work mm. and there is a place to, you know, reinterpret the classics and see how it relates and fits with your generation. Yeah. And definitely like, you know, we want to, I want to, I want people to keep on writing new work, but I also, I love personally finding an old classic, playing around with it, exploring it, getting to know it so much deeper, mm. and then discovering what perhaps we could do to tell the story in a different way, which is, you know, which is what we did with Risht. Uh, we played around with the story for a long time, just doing little devising exercises around it, and then slowly decided what we were going to tell, what point of view we were going to tell. And there was, you know, it came down to there were two different ways we could have told the story. Mm. Um, one of them was, you know, about the divide between rich and poor. Mm. And the other side was connection mm. and how this girl is just struck, like she just wants to connect. And when we did our creative development showing, we <laughs> were telling both stories at the same time. We we're trying to do both yeah. because we think that both are really important stories. And that's one thing that came out of the showing or the feedback was you need to pick one. Which one connects to you more? Mm -hmm. Which one connects, you know, what you've got to decide what story you've got to tell. You can't tell two stories at once, really. So that's, it was really good that we did that showing because we clarified it a lot more. Uh, we personally decided to go with the connection side yeah. just because that's what we've got more experience with personally and we felt we could tell that story a lot more. And so, yeah, in the last six weeks to the month before the show, we just adapted, changed it around a little bit more, edited it. And, yeah, I'm really glad that we went the way we went because, yeah, it was, I think it was a really beautiful story it with was, that connection. And yeah. it, was, it was so beautiful and sad because you do see the, and I think, you, yeah, the connection because mm. you had the flashbacks with the family and, and you know, yeah. the dinner table scene, which was yeah. just, I just, see, that was, oop, oh, Dropping all my <laughs> rubbish on the floor. Yeah, you, you have this wonderful. Um, yeah, I think connection is wonderful, like especially with family, because being you know a person, my, my um, you know descendancy, my cultural background is you know Spanish and Italian, the Mediterranean mm. um, thing. So family obviously is very very important. Very, very important. <laughs> and that's I think how me and Mum really related to the play. We got the family, the dysfunctional family, the father figure. The you got the the essences and the stereotypicalness stereotypes and you've got the <laughs> archetypes you've got the stock yeah. characters that you can see in mm. all in almost all families yeah and just sort of yeah just giving that really nice homely feeling and the fun we definitely wanted the flashbacks to be really happy and fun because otherwise the whole story yeah. is it's miserable and we wanted to give you know the the audience a little bit of light a little bit of fun but then it also just juxtaposes so much when you get to the end and it's just that utter sadness. Really. Yeah, at the end, and especially with um, and like, and I love that battle between her and death mm. at the end. Yeah. Well, it wasn't really much of a battle; it was just the inevitable. <laughs> yeah. But but I loved it how you dramatically stretched that and mm. the and the running and the oh, 
Yeah. Hope you should make like a definitely. If I had money, I would ask your permission if I could um, like record, make like a film adaptation. Oh, cool. If I had the money, I know, sorry. I know. I was like, oh, if we had the money, if we so had many money. things we could do. Because <laughs> what was really interesting is because sitting right next to me in the audience with my mum, there's this little girl, and she, she must have been twelve. Oh, not much a little, but yeah. yeah. But she was. There was a point where I thought, oh, that was nice. You know, she's she's going out. I'm just assuming not many, I generally assume not many people go out to the theatre these days, but I saw this girl, and then, I had to describe this while um, <laughs> you can't see me do this, but she was just staring, you know, her, she was, her body language was just absolutely invested into the show, wow. just leaning, that's it, leaning, leaning over, forward. leaning forward, and just, just, you know, really absorbed, and so, and the reason why I mentioned that who who inspired you to do? You, is there was there like a spark hmm. to get you into show business, like to get you in the arts? Was there like? Oh, a... it would definitely be my mum. Hmm. Yeah, oh. so she's always loved acting and theatre, and she did a lot of community theatre. And then when my brother and I were born, we started getting taken along to rehearsals, and then eventually into the plays. Yeah, and so I've sort of grown up always doing some acting. I used to force all of my family, my granny and grandpa, my, my uncles and aunties, to come to our house and watch these little plays that I put on. I ah. think they were terrible, probably, uh, my four-year-old <laughs> self. Uh, but yeah, I used to call them up and be like, I've got a play, would you like to come <laughs> see it? And so then they'd have to come on over yeah. and watch this play. So yeah, I've always been creating and doing stuff, and it's definitely been um, encouraged in my house like my mum's been really supportive my dad once said he could have said to me get a real job or you know do something mm. else but he thought well she'll just do it anyway so I might as well oh, that's nice. <laughs> just you know let her let her go with it uh yeah and, like I was given little drama like drama lessons outside mm. of school growing up uh so yeah very very lucky in that it's always been supported and encouraged I think it is very important then. It's one of those industries where, I don't know, yeah, it's obviously, I think it's the most personal industry to be mm. in. I don't know, thinking back, yeah, I think when you're young, you get introduced to the idea of working in the arts professionally, I think, when you're young, mm. compared to other you know, industries, like, because I, part-time I work in construction, and I feel like all those, uh, the guys who I work with, they, they all joined, they wanted to be, you know, a carpenter, a sparky, some, um, yes, a part of necessity because, mm. you know, it pays, it's good, it's constant yeah. work. Um, there's, a, there's a demand for it, a serious commercial mm. uh, demand for it. But it was also like, oh, I was like at the end of high school, I left high school to, um, you know, I left year 10 to then do an apprenticeship. And mm. so it's just a good job. And now I do it and I, and I love it. It's really, yeah. Um, okay, I'll just let that, <laughs> that idea float away. <laughs> Oh, I do that all the time. Like, I was telling this for a reason. Nope, reason's gone. <laughs> <laughs> ah, do you find time, like, do you feel like when, you, when you're creating something, you need to let work breathe? Yeah, definitely. Uh, and that's something that we've discovered is we have a process where we like to create and, you know, play around with ideas, not be too serious with anything, then start to create, and then we like to have a creative development showing, get a lot of information back. And then the first show that we did, we launched straight back into rehearsals. 
And I definitely, we had a little bit of a breather space with Rish, I think only like a week or two weeks mm. maybe, where we just stopped. We stopped rehearsals, we went away, you know, we had just some time to let everything sit in the back of our minds, breathe, and then we came back together and decided to start again. And I think that's going to be something that we keep on doing, or maybe even if we've got the opportunity and the time to have an even bigger break, because it's really good to just refresh yourself, get away from the work as well, think about some other things, mm. because I do, I find my brain does get consumed by it, and it's really good to take a step back and think about some other things and I, I like letting my subconscious do a lot of work yes. um, because I find especially like if I'm stuck with a problem and I cannot think of the answer distracting myself by doing something different often my subconscious keeps on working through it and finds a way more creative solution to the problem than I would have thought if I was actively mm. working on how to fix this yeah so I think and I think definitely having as much time as possible to rehearse, but also having deadlines because I think when we have too much time, we don't work. You know, we, we get distracted, we play around, we mess around a bit too much. So, yeah, it's a, it's a very fine balance in, like, having enough time to do all the playing and the, like, giving the work the space, but also that deadline so we're actually working towards something, which, yeah, I think each project will try and find that balance do you find well, what like the practices of buto and suzuki mm. how in your opinion how can it help how, how does it help inform like western theater practice oh well suzuki i think it can help with any sort of theater style mm. uh, because it's a really good training to do and I, yeah i think it could help even if you're not a performer, I think it could help anybody in whatever yeah. they do. It's really good training in presence and energy and, you know, like physical knowing. So knowing what your body's doing at what point and also knowing that you can push through when things start to hurt because a lot of Suzuki is pain. Um, it's, it's, I like to describe it as sort of the martial arts for actors. And it's funny because Suzuki didn't set out, Tadashi Suzuki didn't set out to create a training method he's still a little bit confused as to why lots yeah. of Westerners are using this. So all of his little exercises that he does, they came out of necessity because his actors weren't able to do what he wanted them to do on stage. But for me, I find, yeah, I love Suzuki because it gets me grounded into my body, gets me yeah, grounded to the earth. Mm. And there's, you know, like, it's a solidity and a groundedness. But also, yeah, really focuses my attention, my presence, and, yeah, helps me... To be in the room so we often do some training just before getting into rehearsals and if yeah if we had more time I'd love to do a lot more Suzuki mm -hmm. and then head into rehearsals like it would be great if you were able to do like an hour worth of Suzuki and then go on to do a few hours of rehearsals mm -hmm. just because you've got that presence there you've worked out all your day you everything from the you know the previous few hours is gone and you're here in the room and you're ready to work so yeah I think Suzuki could be used for anybody like it's a really really useful method buto um yeah it's not because it, that's the yeah, performance style mm. so yeah not so much able to be used in any sort of theater like i can't see it being that useful to realism for example oh, it's, yes. <laughs> it's, it's a very uh, very strange very expressionistic sort of movement 
one of the founders actually was really highly influenced by German expressionist dancing. Oh, so, you know, yeah, like Pina Bausch and mm. all those sorts of people. So, yeah, when you look at those sorts of, you know, look at Pina Bausch and all her sort of dancing, and then you look at Boucher, you can definitely see some links. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I think there's some exercises you can do in Butoh to help build character and then turn, you could turn the dial down. And so you, you know, you start off with this massive, big, crazy image. You could turn it down so that's just happening on the inside and forming the actor with what they're doing. But yeah, I, I love Butoh. I think in Western culture, we're too obsessed with looking pretty. I've noticed there's like a lot of, I felt like a lot of Eastern influences Enriched a little magical, especially when you're um, playing with fire. Mm. You, when you're personifying the the, the match um, being ignited. Mm. Yeah, we definitely played with Buto a lot in the creating of bits for that show. We'd love to do more Buto, so I'm absolutely in love with it. But yeah, we definitely for the flame, and then also I don't know if you noticed the funny mask faces. Oh yes, the court. Uh, well, yeah, the, the, the for suits. the businessmen. Yeah, yeah. Business, yeah, yeah, we decided we wanted to make them really sort of unhuman and grotesque yeah, yes, and yeah. just highlight the fact that they're so removed from humanity, even though that's what most, you know, a lot of the population wear suits. Yeah. So yeah, we used um, Buto masks for that. And I find it a lot of fun to see what you can create mask-wise with your face without having to put a mask on. Yeah. Because yeah, I know you've done like Commedia dell'arte, which yes. is great. And you can, you have these huge, massive masks. But it's also fun to see what you can do just with like this flesh and bone that's already on you. Well, the thing I think a good thing with Eastern it, honesty, on it, it really brings out honesty mm. is the best policy. Yeah. And I feel like Suzuki does help strip away the sort of if you were like acting like in a in a classical sense, like in a play, it does mm. help strip away these sort of masks. And although I don't know it's really interesting, like. Because in my in my experience in my education, it was always a combination. Obviously, we were big on um, the BPA course is big on Suzuki yeah, and yeah. Buto, and then we do work with um, you know the Western sort of Stanislavski and touch a bit on uh, a little bit on Meisner and you know like with Westerns, it's a lot of thinking. It is, yeah, and a lot of thinking, like asking why. Mm, and I find personally that doesn't work for me. Mm. I come up with very stereotypical, straight-down-the-line answers that aren't exactly interesting. I find I need to work with my body first and discover... So if I'm looking at character development, get up and do stuff as the character, figure out this body that they're in before I sit down and answer the questions. I, I think the questions still are really important, but I think for me they have to come later because then I've got a lot more interesting... Things, it's not just what anybody would have come up with. It's just, it's something probably left of field and very odd, but it still works. Whereas, yeah, if I sit down and just go straight into the thinking, I don't really find that I come up with much interesting information. Did you, uh, oh, bugger it, sad <laughs> Did you really enjoy your time in, of course you must have enjoyed your time in New York. Oh, yes, yeah, I loved it. Oh. It was incredible. They're just... You know, they've been working together for such a long time yeah. as an ensemble. And it's just really nice to see a company that's lasted that yeah. long. I, I think, yeah, in Australia, you know, the, um, there's, you know, there are a lot of companies that have lasted a long time, but none really that I can think of that are ensembles. You know, it's really, it's really tough. And it is tough over in America as well, but they've got a little bit more of a culture of philanthropy. Whereas in Australia, it's a lot more, I think we rely on grants from the government 
and that can be really tough to get even if you've been getting them for a long time. But yeah, they were just really honest as well. We, we, did the, we didn't do the work. The workshop that I did with them wasn't in New York City. It was upstate New York, mm. but they're based in New York City. And they said, we don't lie. You know, we've got a rehearsal room and an office, but we're by no means big. You know, we, they're like, you know, we struggle each year, but we get through and we're able to get, you know, productions up on the road and touring around and, you know, it, they, they're not pretending that everything's easy, yeah. which I found really lovely and refreshing. And they were, you know, they were honest about the fact that it's just a small rehearsal room, but they're really glad that they've got yeah. a rehearsal room. Was there anything that really resonated with you, like in regards to, you know, Anne Bogart and viewpoints? Mm. Um, was there anything that you thought, if you have to take away something, what was it that you had to, you know, take Ooh, away? Oh, just one thing. Wow. It doesn't have to be. Yeah, be. yeah. Well, there's so many things. Um... Yeah, I first discovered Anne Bogart when I was doing some research for a uni assignment and read a chapter of her book and was like, this lady is incredible. And then discovered the viewpoints and just, you know, it's such an excellent language to use when creating theatre. It just helps you to be on the same page. It really helps build ensemble as well, training of viewpoints. But in actual creating, it really gives you this language to be able to figure out you know, what you want to try and create in the scene. So you're going to use a whole lot of different elements and then let's create it. it and, you know, also Anne Bogart's way of creating compositions, of using, a, using exquisite pressure and really forcing you to make decisions quickly and not sit around chatting about it for ages, I found just really, really useful and refreshing because we've done a lot of assignments at uni, like in group work, and I found it really difficult. It was always really scary to get up and start doing things. Yeah. Everybody really loved to sit and chat and talk it through and through and through and through before we actually did anything. Whereas this method, you have to get up straight away. You haven't got the time to sit around and talk. You just have to get up and make decisions. And, you know, afterwards, you know, you, you go back and you that's just a really rough draft. And you can, you know, edit it from there on, but you've got the draft. It's there. You can build up on top of that. See, I find it sort of like a shortcut to creating, and that's something that I love a lot. Also, you know, just listening to her speak is, oh, yeah. she talks just like she writes in her books, and she's just such a lovely, you know, engaging writer and speaker, so you just sort of sit there wide-eyed, listening, and yeah, it's just so much wisdom. To prepare for this interview, well, prepare, I don't do much <laughs> preparation, but I was just on YouTubing Anne Bogart, and she's saying this fascinating, oh, I should have written down at the time, yeah. but she, was, she she used, she, she quoted, I think this German arts practitioner, maybe, she was saying, like, where she comes from, like, I think someone was asking her about, I, th she, she, I don't know, she, she, and she mentioned this quote about how you're standing on the shoulders of giants. Yeah. And you're looking forward. Mm. And it's basically... And I really like it how we do come from this sort of lineage. Like there are special... Like she was mentioning it. She was, she was mentioning, men, mentioning like all her mentors and like teachers. And yeah. like the people that really influence her to continue on mm. practicing. Yeah. And yeah, the standing on those shoulders. You know, you're here doing what you're doing because you've learned from them. From all their mistakes. All the things that they've discovered. And now, yeah, you're here... And you've got them there. You know, they're right. You're standing on their shoulders, so they're there to help you out. Yeah, it's really a lovely phrase. I remember reading that in one of her books and just being like, yes, <laughs> yes, you are right. <laughs>
Do you find, have you, to go back to the Open Lit Ensemble, mm. you are the same age group, yeah? Um, sort of, yeah, roughly, I think this, we're all 20s and early 30s. Oh, yeah. yeah, so you're in the same sort of generation. Yeah. I'd be interested, sorry, I'll scratch that, right? I don't know where <laughs> you're going with this. No, I just find it interesting how, so this is coming back because I interviewed uh, yesterday, so the, the previous essay, I was talking to this guy, Glenn Hayden, this mm. director, fellow. And he was talking about, I'm not sure if this was, is actually in the podcast, so I think this is a bit of a bonus, but he was talking about how back in his day in Perth in the late 80s, there was a lot of mixing with older artists mm-hmm. and young artists, you see, that always, you know, the bars, like there's quite a social, the social activity, you know, yeah. socialising, you, you mix the young and old mix and that and he doesn't see that much anymore yeah that's really sad like i don't know why it is but it would be great for it to happen again i definitely feel like there's a massive Mm. wall or divide like between the established like the older like you tend to associate like the older people obviously they are more well established yeah they're either you know working at the state theater center Mm. or you know or you know touring and, and you know what have you running companies and and then us young people, we are participating in these smaller uh, companies mm. or pop-up companies that last until friends, you know, because we didn't get grants funding. It just yep, yep. <laughs> it just falls. I don't know. Would you like to? Obviously, yeah, you would love to oh, work yeah. with uh, someone like an elder, like an artistic elder. Yeah, definitely. And just you know, they've got a lot more experience, yeah. a lot more knowledge of things. Of you know. Perhaps what's worked, what hasn't. Whereas I find, you know, if you're always just working with people the same age as you, you're not going to experience that. It'll just, you know, you'll be making some mistakes that perhaps you don't need to make. Perhaps somebody, you know, could have said, that's not going to work. <laughs> and you could be like, oh, okay, I'll listen to you. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, how to get that happening again, I've got no idea. We're just putting it out there in about. the universe. Yeah, there you go, universe. <laughs> universe, you can deal with <laughs> that, please. That one. <laughs> This is my wish list. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> what was the last show you've seen? What's the most recent show you've seen? I don't suppose it really was a show, but on Friday night... Well, they won a Fringe Awards, so it was, it was a show. No, yeah. um, it was called the Fairly Average Dance Party. Fairly Average Dance Party? <laughs> yeah. And they're just basically a, a band, but they all play this, like, not their main instrument... So if they're normally on the bass, they'll be playing a keyboard or, you know, a percussion instrument or something that's not their main instrument normally. So they say that they're fairly average because, you know, they're not playing their strongest instrument, but they're all very irritating people who are fantastic on every instrument that they play. Um, (laughs) (laughs) As someone who's not musically talented, it is incredibly infuriating. Uh, but yeah, they just played, like there were so many different instruments on stage mm. and they're picking them up and they just basically played a lot of uh, like 90s hits. It was great fun. So we just basically danced for two hours straight. Oh, wow. It was so much fun. But yeah, that was the last one. That was Friday night. So that was the last show. <laughs> that's, that's fascinating. Yeah. Well, do they decide which instrument they're going to pick up or, on um, the night? Or? I think they've probably rehearsed it okay. with that instrument. But I mean, they swap and change throughout the set. Oh, you know, they're, okay. they're constantly, but, yeah, like there would be like swapping instruments around each other. Oh, that's um, cool. Yeah, so just very, very talented people. And, you know, they all took turns in singing different songs. And oh, was just cool. It was so much fun. And I was like, yes. I, yeah, I definitely think there's a lot of room for fun in art still. You know, yeah. I don't think it needs to be too serious. Why do you make art? 
Uh, cause it keeps me sane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, cause I get bored and grumpy and annoyed with life when I'm not creating it. There has to be moments where you see what I've been finding out that's really, really good. I, when I'm like angry or pressed, mm. uh, let's face it, everyone does get depressed yeah. like, and you know, really down. Mm. I do like a stream of consciousness. Yeah. And I try to, you know, I try to poetically articulate <laughs> my feelings. But it's really interesting. I've got like this. It's starting to become like a collection now of writing. Oh, beautiful. Um, but it, it's, it's just really interesting how this this profession can help you articulate mm. your emotions and your feelings. Yeah, and like deal, like discover so much more about yourself. Yeah. Like I find, yeah, the more art I do, the more I'm learning about who I am and perhaps why I why I react in certain situations the way that I do uh, yeah and just figuring out you know what it is that I want to do and drives me and all that sort of stuff do you think not oh god <laughs> I'm sorry I'm going very blank like do you think that like art can be defined is is there like a, a definition like uh, I reference because you know from uh, technically speaking like anyone like in an art gallery like mm. like you know there's usually like piece like there's like at the Perth Art Gallery there's literally like a giant portrait and it's just black yeah <laughs> and you know to some people that's wow interesting yeah and then some people are saying that's not art it's just yeah black yeah. it's just what is it yeah or like any of the sort of the abstract paintings my child could do that yeah, <laughs> yeah it's yeah it's really tough because I don't know yeah, all that came to mind when you said, does art have a definition? I remember this little quote that I once saw, and it was like, the earth without art is just eh. You know, just eh. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> so I'm like, well, yeah, I think eh. art is what, um, <laughs> you know, that's what art makes life interesting. And a lot of people who say art's not necessary or, you know, it's not important to their life, I'm like, okay, well, then take away everything that's art in your life. You won't be watching any TV. Or listening to any music, you can take any sort of artwork off your walls, you know, any colourful clothing that you own or anything that's, you know, fashion, take that away. You know, you can take, you know, even like your car, it wouldn't look interesting. You know, there's art is in everything, I think. Mm. And yeah, like, yeah, I really, I love having arguments with people if they say that art's not a necessary thing to life, because I really, I think it is. And I think it, yeah, I think it's what makes art interesting. Sorry. I think art is what makes life interesting and like worth living. Yeah. I think certainly like fire. Mm. I recently got as my graduation present. I got this book from my family, a thousand and one great ideas, like philosophical oh, ideas. So it's like through history, like from like million BC all the way to now. And like one of the first great ideas of man was and women, people. The first great idea of people was fire. Yeah. And I feel like I, art. Yeah, it's, it's fire, it's mm. necessary. I don't know, obviously I'm a bit biased because we try to work in the field. I know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, no. <laughs> but yeah, I, look, I love I just thinking about fire. I love using fire in my work. Yeah? Yeah, like you mentioned in the introduction that Buto show I did with Zanzenzo mm. during my internship could Here There Be Dragons. Mm. And yeah, we, I made up a, little, a dance with tea light candles. On because you can actually sit them on your hands and on your feet, and so there was a bunch of us dancing with tea light candles and all the different things that you can do with them. Fortunately, we were in a space that allowed us to use fire, yeah. 
And then with Risht as well, when we performed at Fremantle Festival, the venue that we used allowed us to use fire as well. Wow, so we used okay. real matches and candles, uh, which was great. Um, I think, though, having done it at uh, Fringe, where we weren't allowed to use fire, I think it worked more theatrically not having the fire. Yeah. It was a lot more um, reliable. Matches sometimes oh, yeah. don't light, and also candles blow out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but having the smell of the smoke, you know, after you know the match has gone out, and seeing the actual flame, it's just there's something about that. It's also you know any time any sort of element is used on stage, I love it. You know, like water. Oh. And there's water on stage. I'm just like yes, or you know sand or anything like that. Just you know going back to yeah the roots and like yeah I really love that. Whenever I see. When I, I just watched yesterday afternoon at the Blue Room this new play called So You Think You're Charlie Smith. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, I want to watch that writ- one. Written by uh, Jackson Used and Ben Thomas, and it had, you know, Phoebe Sullivan and Holly Hines and James oh, McMillan cool. and, and I believe Ben Thomas and this other lady who was really remarkable, but <laughs> I don't know her name, she had this great voice. But what they had in this production was water. They had these yes. buckets of water and they would. And it's so interesting how powerful stillness and silence can be. Mm. Like, they had all these moments of great dialogue, witty, sharp. Yeah. So you think Charlie Smith, to give... It was, it's really a... It, I find it to be a great satire on um, re- reality TV shows. It was oh, about cool. that. It was, it was playing with, you know, reality yeah. TVs, and there's, like, the host, the figure of the host, mm. the people, the producer behind stage pulling all the strings and then you've got yeah. the contestants oh it was a really there's like it's a really really good piece but they had these moments where the contestants and also you got to see the host um there was a plastic bucket water and towels and they they must have used like a flannelette and you know you'd hear the sound of the water like they'd soak the flannelette mm. in the water and then they'd squeeze the water oh. and that the sound of water is so yeah. powerful and then you they, they would essentially no, just it was a very simple move. They'd just wipe it, just one stroke on their arm, and it was quite good because the light would glisten. You know, the water would glisten. Oh, wow. like, so, so yeah, working with the basic elements, mm. it's magical. It really is, and so easy to do. Really, you know, it's just a bucket of yeah. water, and yet it's incredible to watch. And to talk about Tadashi Suzuki, I think. Did write this essay. I'm, I'm, I'm going to attribute to him. He's writing about the importance of. There's two energies in theatrical performances. Saying there's uh, animal energy, mm. and then there's mechanical energy. Oh, okay. Animal energy in the sense of you know people physically doing things, mm. and mechanical energy in the sense of lighting and sound. And he's saying a lot of modern productions, you know, have. Their energy gets sucked up by mechanicals with yeah. lighting and sound. And I think it's just so refreshing. We need to have that balance of animal energy yeah. where you get to see the performers, like going back with the bucket of water. They mm-hmm. had no sound. The, the energy was coming from them twisting the, the and making their own sound yeah. and lighting. And, and you don't have to have amazing sound and lighting to be interesting. Mm. You just have to be sort of interested in what you're doing. And that is interesting to an audience. But yeah, I think that's definitely true what you've just said. Yeah, it'd be great to have, you know, the mechanical energy only comes afterwards. So first you have to have really good animal energy. And then how cool would it be to then put on the mechanical energy on top of that? You'd have Mm. a great show. (laughs) 
But then it just got me out as an afterthought after reading this, I'd think, so what would be better? Wicked, the musical, or like a hundred sweaty people running around stage? <laughs> the energy. No, I just had that thought, yeah. that little afterthought. So, okay, the, so obviously animal energy, I think you're saying your animal energy has, has to trump mechanical energy. Yeah. And I was just thinking, yeah, what's more interesting to watch? A hundred people sweating, running around stage, or wicked musical? Because that, that was quite, you know. That was very, yeah, technical and, you know, relied very heavily on the tech. Maybe we'll have to do that. A little experiment. Do a big budget yeah. musical. <laughs> big budget musical and then no budget, run around on stage, everybody. Well, you could actually, because I remember last year, the, the grant officers, because we, we studied a bit about arts management mm. last year, my last year, and they're saying, yeah, so this year the DCA, you've got grants from, you know, under 15K, but then you've got <laughs> projects over 15K, yeah. like $100,000, and I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm thinking, well, I'm interested in doing a musical, and, uh, <laughs> yes. you know. What, it's going to cost, yeah, $99,000, but that would probably be a tiny musical. Yeah. I think those things must cost a lot to put on. That would just cover the rights. Yeah. I'd say. Just cover like 90,000 yeah, big rights. Do you enjoy watching musicals? I do. I wouldn't say they're my favourite thing. Mm. I watched Singing in the Rain when it came to Perth and that was really, really good. Oh, yeah. Just, yeah, so polished. And I think that's probably what I like about the musicals is that they've had the rehearsals. Mm. That, like, you know, they've had, they make money. Yeah. I think they're one of the only theatres, like, you know, the only type of theatre that really makes money in Australia. So, you know, they've got you know, a lot of money's pushed into it for rehearsals and everything. So, you know, it's beautifully polished and, yeah, I, I think that's what I like about it. I'm not a huge musicals person, mm. per se, but, you know, I do enjoy going to the occasional one. It's just something interesting. Like, mm. I haven't seen, like, I've been kicking... Oh, I, I have seen, but I, I want to see more opera. Yeah, I've never seen any opera. Yeah, it'd be great. Yeah, I don't know whether I'd like it or not. I'm very curious, like, I'd be... See, one of the most interesting theatrical experiences I ever had was when I... I think I told you this, but I'll, I'll tell it again. Because I, I went to Spain in 2012 for, a, like, a family trip, and I just graduated high school and whatnot, and we went to Spain. And, you know, I was starting to become really interested in theatre. Mm. So I thought, oh, obviously I want to see a play in Spanish. Yeah. I want to see a play in Spain. And it's so interesting, because I don't... I, sadly, I don't, I don't speak much Spanish. I don't know the language well. But it's just so interesting sitting in the theatre, listening to a foreign language. You don't technically, well, I don't, I don't know what they were saying. Yeah. Well, I, I picked up, I knew some words. Um, but it's just such an interesting experience where mm. you do not know the language at all. But you still sort of understand the storyline yeah. somehow, yeah. And when some, and, and the thing I remember now is magical moments are really amplified. Oh, wow. I was, the play I was watching was, um, in English, it's Dinner with Idiots. Okay. You know, like, because there's a film on our Dinner with the Schmucks, but there's a play called Dinner with Idiots where all these, it's the basic premise is like all these rich fans, they meet w weekly, they have dinner together, but they bring an idiot to oh, make lovely. fun. <laughs> fun of? So there's this guy, this rich guy, this, you know, playboy guy, there's he's that dinner time again, and he's trying to find the local idiot mm. to bring to dinner um, with. But I remember there was this beautiful moment where. The wife of the husband, she got into hospital or something. She was in hospital because I think she was pregnant or something happened to her. And it's just, it was very simple production. Like the lighting was like, she was like in this box. I know, they put her in this box and like the, the light was on her and there's like a bit of, um, 
fly wire covering her, so you couldn't really see her. And I think the idiot, but it was just yeah, just like the 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 sound of her voice and the man. It was very because obviously yeah, theatre is quite musical. Mm. I think that's what I got a lot of like our language can be so musical and you can just impose music. Yeah, there's a sort of a rhythm mm. to it, especially beautiful, like you know, well written work. It has definitely it's almost like poetry. With Rish, do you find yeah, do you feel like music helps immensely? Yeah. And we're really lucky that Michael um, is so talented. Mm. You know, we sort of, we he does all the music for us. He composes it and then performs it live. And I really love the fact that we have live music because it just, you know, he's feeding off us at the same time, you know, and he's in there in the room instead of it just being a recording. Yeah. Uh, so as long as, you know, I think we'll definitely have as much live music as possible in shows I think it's beautiful but yeah he's um, we sort of we just tell him what we want we're like we're thinking something like this mm. we don't even give him very specific anything and he'll be like oh okay because this is what I this is what I was thinking and then he'll play something and we all just like our, our jaws drop <laughs> like how did you know we didn't even know that's what we wanted you know like somewhere in our brains it's like something like that um, but yeah just yeah really incredible to have that live music and specifically designed for that show mm. is, is such a lovely thing to have um, and I think it really adds to it because if we just found you know some standard stock music or you know something that we could get rights to I don't think it would have had quite the same effect on the atmosphere like yeah. I really the music that he makes really adds to the atmosphere and you know doing rehearsals without them there you definitely feel like there's an element missing. You know, there's something, there's something not right with this. And then it's like, oh, Michael, come play. Oh, there we go. All good now. <laughs> so one of the greatest yeah. moments, you had a live violin, didn't you? Yeah, we did. Yeah. I was like, is that a live violin? And yeah. it was. And it's like, it's, see, it's very rare when you yeah, watch a theatrical production that there is a live music, mm. apart from, you know, big musicals. Yeah. With the orchestra and whatnot. Yeah, just, you know, like, feeling the music yeah. in the room. And it's, yeah, it's also really nice as a performer because you know that, say, something does happen, like maybe I fall over or something, because it is a very physical work. They're playing at the same time as you. Mm. So, you know, they can, if they're listening and aware enough, they could, they could probably pick up on that and do yeah. something. Or, you know... There's just a lot of possibility for things to happen in the moment. And you're both feeding off each other. So, you know, like, I'm somebody's cue, but I'm also listening for that cue. Yeah, I really, I love it. I, I have so much admiration for musicians. Incredible. Oh, absolutely. Is there anything you want to tell your younger self? Mm. Like, I feel like, like, I'm curious, like, I'm just thinking, like, I remember, see, like, how me and Courtney met many, many years ago. I first performed with her mother, uh, Lindsay Turner, and her brother, Garen Turner, in the play I Own But My Place, yeah. way back in 2008. Wow. <laughs> and then, yeah, that's how I met you, and then we did a panto together, Babes in the Wood. Was that yeah. our first? Yeah, and I played a dog. <laughs> so you played a dog, and you played the sort of villain, like the yeah, assistant sort of to idiot. the... Yeah, sort of idiot. Yeah. Idiot villain, sort of, yeah. All I remember, I just, I was, I was, I was playing the sort of dame, the... Yeah. Oh, that was a great time. Such fun. Oh, bugger. I've lost it. See, reminiscing. I think that's... <laughs> that's I think as you're older, you've got to be careful with reminiscing and memories and 
Like, just curious, like, do you feel like, because I feel like I'm really old. I'm not old, I'm young. <laughs> yeah, but do you right. feel like, fuck, I'm 20-something or other? Uh, occasionally. But I also feel very young and sort of a little bit like, why am I pretending to be a grown-up? Sort of, yeah, yeah. like, I'm like, I don't feel like a grown-up. I don't feel anyone yeah. And then I do some grown-up things and I'm like, what? This is, am I actually a grown-up? I'm talking to grown-ups. They're looking at me like I'm a grown-up. You're just feeling a bit, yeah, a bit like a fraud. It's like, well, I'm not, I'm not grown-up. I'm still a little kid. Oh, there's a part yeah. of me that just wish, like, oh, I, I'd hate to be that sort of, you know, Peter Pan complex. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd, I'd really hate, to, I'd hate to be Peter Pan. I wouldn't want to be young all the time. Hmm. No, I probably wouldn't either. But, yeah, part of me definitely doesn't like the idea of growing up. Are you looking <laughs> forward to ageing? Like being on old... Part of me, oh, part of me feels okay. This is where I feel old already. I really do love like cups of tea and like you know sitting outside in the sun and drinking my cup of tea and reading my book. So in some ways, I'm like, oh, I'm an old lady already. So yeah, bring on old age. But then the other part of me is like, no ways. I'm still a little kid. Yeah. I don't know if I'll ever be feel the age that I am. I'll probably be feeling both old and young all of the time. Do you feel like you could retire? Do you feel like you could hang up your metaphorical paintbrush no, and say, I'm no. done? No, I think I would be very bored. I think, uh, yeah, I think it would be nice to be able to, you know, still be, you know, not having full working days, but I'd love to be able to work until the day I die, you know, still be yeah. creating in whatever form it is when I'm old, whether I, you know, take up painting or something like that. But, you know, be doing something creative because that's definitely what feeds me, really. So. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. That's right, now I remember. <laughs> Sorry, talk speak about old age. Is there anything that you want to say to your younger self? Oh, I would love to, you know, be like, don't worry so much. Yeah. <laughs> you know, things are going to turn out all right. So, you know, just be, just go with it. And yeah, just like throw yourself into it. Don't, don't be scared of it, of the work, of what you're doing or like what character you're playing. Just, just go for it and have fun. Is there is there a thing you don't want to forget, like a piece mm-hmm. of advice? Because I know, so in a way, so like this recording, the reason why I'm doing it, it's also like a good sort of time capsule, mm. in a sense. Yeah, so much advice, really. It's just, um, yeah, the only thing I can really like jumping to mind. And I'm not sure how it fits into this, but I was working at a restaurant, and one of the stewards said to, you know, he saw me doing something. He's like, Courtney. Like, I was, you know, doing something a really difficult way around, which is yeah. what I tend to do. You know, I tend to, for some reason, pick the hardest way possible to do something to begin with, instead of, you know, figuring out that there's way easier options. And he just, he just shook his head and he laughed. He's like, Courtney, you're very good at working hard. Now you've got to learn how to work smart. Work and I was smart. like, mind exploded. Because, yeah, I'm very good at working hard, but I think I do need to learn. You know, I, not everything has to be done the hardest possible yeah. way you, you can find easier ways to do things so that would be good to learn while well, working hard um working smart. smart yeah i think yeah my uncle told me that yeah yeah because you can if you work too hard obviously you have the danger of you could hurt yourself yeah yeah and definitely like in the arts like burnout yeah. yeah if you work too hard if you try and do too much all at once you know it, it is a really tough industry and i think like lots of people burn out I feel like I've already you know burnt out before and you know it's really tough to you know go back to working when you like you're just like I'm exhausted and I'm sick of this 
I don't want to do this anymore. It's just, it's too hard. Why is it so hard? Um, so yeah, I think part of that is surrounding yourself with a good team. Oh yeah. Um, and making sure that if you are overwhelmed, saying that you are not feeling ashamed by it. Yeah. Which is really good. Like we do that in the, in the infinite ensemble, you know, it's, we are, we have given ourselves a space to ask for help, which is really good. It's wonderful. Yeah. It's still, it's still difficult. It's still really, really difficult, especially for those of us that perfectionists, because you know, that's, you know, that's like admitting that you're not perfect, but yeah, it's, it's definitely something that's necessary. Yeah. Is there, um, like in like five years time, like, do, is there like, you don't necessarily have to do with the open lid ensemble, Mm. but just, is there like a classic work that you want to adapt? Ooh. doesn't have to be like a Shakespeare yeah, play. Yeah. I'm just curious, is it like one oh, I've been thinking about? About doing that. Ah, I did have a thought a few weeks ago, but I've completely forgotten what it was that I wanted to do, which is terrible. I should write things down. Look, there's so much. There's so much. I'd love, yeah, I can't think of anything off the top of my head mm. right now. But definitely there'll probably be more works that I adapt. I, 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 have, I find it so much fun adapting classics, so... There'll definitely be more, that's for sure. Well, I have to say that time is, we've run out of time, but mm. as we know, the Perthian Chronicles, I have to, there's a sign-off question. Oh, okay. The last, last mm. question, and oh God, <laughs> let's see how this goes. I'm nothing too serious. So as you know, Courtney, yeah. we have somewhat, you know, we have verbally agreed, I think in writing, so I think I can, Oof. I can, I can <laughs> take you on that. Um, we are to meet again in the year 2027. That's terrifying. Ten years time. I don't know where we will be. No idea, yeah. Maybe we'll be in Perth. Maybe. Maybe in New York. Oof, wouldn't we'll that never, be wonderful? We'll never know. <laughs> but that time, when I revisit you and recap, so Courtney, mm-hmm. in the year 2027, what would you like to plug? Oh. Plug in the sense of promotional play, a play, oh. an autobiography, oh. uh, an essay. Oh, can you play an essay? A CD? Oh, no, I definitely won't so be. So there's a, <laughs> a midget, I don't know where that came from. <laughs> no, I definitely won't be plugging a CD, that's for sure, unless somehow, magically, although computers are pretty good, maybe I will be a rock star <laughs> in 2027. <laughs> no, probably won't be that. Um, what would I like to plug? Mm. Oh. I am, I've just directed mm-hmm. an incredible play with heaps of really, really cool actors in it who are very talented. Mm. And there's an incredible set. <laughs> it looks great. Yeah. And it is touring both nationally and internationally. So I don't really need to plug it because, you know, it's selling so well. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> And I'm also just, I've written a book as well. So I'm plugging the book. <laughs> oh, very good. Oh dear, sorry, future me. Oh, that's a ti- that should be the title. Oh dear, sorry, future oh, me. Oh dear, sorry, future me. Yeah, you've got a lot of work to do now. Get to it. <laughs> okay, well, thank you, Courtney, so much for being on the sixth. Is it the sixth? I think the sixth chapter of the Perthian Chronicles. Well, thank you so much for asking me to do this. <laughs>